Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, SEA's Chief Research Officer, and you're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SEA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from the RICO Symposium, SEA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy cold brew systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Today, we're very happy to present the third and final episode of Harnessing the Power of Science, a session recorded at RICO Symposium this past April. The main focus of this session was to learn about new developments in coffee science and explore how specialty coffee can engage with the scientific enterprise for the benefit of all of us. If you haven't listened to episodes 30 and 31, we strongly recommend you going back and listening to those before you continue with this episode. Okay, so on this episode of the RICO podcast, we were pleased to welcome um, the panel of Dr. Maya Zuniga, supply chain optimization and food science expert at S&D Coffee and Tea, Ed Price, professor of agricultural economics and Howard G. Buffett Foundation Endowed Chair on Conflict and Development at Texas A&M University, Bill Murray, President and CEO of the National Coffee Association, Professor William Ristenpart, Professor of Chemical Engineering and Director of the UC Davis Coffee Center, and Shahan Yuretsian, Professor of Analytical Chemistry, Bioanalytical Chemistry, and Diagnostics, and the head of the Coffee Excellence Center at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences. Together on stage at RICO Symposium this April, I joined this panel to discuss the return to research in agriculture with a particular focus on the amazing period of discovery and development in coffee science that took place in the past decade. Also, to help you follow along in this podcast, I will chime in occasionally to explain who's talking. Okay, thank you, Britta. And so now we're going to have a little bit of a panel discussion, as we've had a number of times. And uh, a few of my colleagues will, will, uh, will join me. I'll, I'll introduce um, you as, as, uh, as we go along. The first is Ed Price. He's a professor at Texas A&M University and uh, also on the board of World Coffee Research. There's uh, Bill Murray. He's the CEO of uh, the uh, National Coffee Association. Maya Zuniga, she is a food scientist at S&D Coffee. And then finally, Bill Ristenpart, um, from, uh, he's the, uh, a professor at uh, UC Davis and also the director of the UC Davis Coffee Center. And finally, Shahan Yuretsian, who's a professor at Zurich University for Applied Sciences and director of its Coffee Excellence Program. To begin with, Ed's going to give us a little bit of a talk on the role of agricultural research and agricultural science. Uh, thanks, Peter. I also want to thank uh, Hannah Nushwander, who helped uh, prepare uh, the visuals for today, and my colleague, Joey King, who helped with the analysis. I'm going to talk about returns to research in agriculture, and especially to coffee. We'll see what we can find out. 
One of the indicators of investments in research on any crop are the number of varieties that are available from that crop. This has been discussed earlier here. Uh, I think a couple years ago, we talked about watermelons and how many hundreds, thousands of varieties there were of watermelons. But let's look at tree crops and, and maize. Z maize has six um, species, and in Ames, Iowa, there are 20,000 varieties of maize that are in the working bank to support scientists' work on maize. For apples, there are 62 species of apples, and worldwide, there are 7,500 varieties of apples being grown today. Oranges, there are 33 species of oranges. The gene bank at Riverside, California, uses 1,200 varieties of, of oranges to support research on improving orange varieties. And we've lamented before that in the case of coffee, we have 125 species from which we've derived 50 varieties. These varieties are like a bank account. That's what we go to to provide resilience to disease, to drought, to high temperatures, low temperatures, and so on. It's also what we use to meet consumer preferences. So the coffee bank account is pretty low compared to other crops. Another tidbit, just interesting, the U.S. colonial uh, repository comprises 30,000 varieties of tree crops, of nuts and fruits. Among those are 200 varieties of bananas and 200 varieties of cacao. It has one coffee plant in the gene bank uh, in Mayagas, uh, Puerto Rico. Another uh, measure of uh, how we exploit this gene bank are the rates of yield that have been continuous from these, from these uh, genetics. You can see that maize far outstrips the other tree crops. It's tripled its yield in the last 55 years. Uh, coffee has uh, increased about 70%, apples about 70%, and oranges about 40%. Interestingly, oranges were innovated first 500 years B.C. It was a cross between mandarin orange and um, pomelo, and that's our sweet orange today. So the innovation in oranges has been going on about 3,000 years. Uh, interestingly, now we should look at what has been the returns to research or innovation. We're turning to a, a meta-study. That's a study of studies that was conducted by the International Food Policy Research Institute. They reviewed 292 articles that reported about 1,800 estimations of returns to research on, uh, on agricultural enterprises, livestock and crops and so on. You can see that the studies um, showed returns from a negative 10% to over 1,500%. The and because of the skewness, and that was one of the uh, attributes of these data sets, they discovered that there is a systematic skewness in, in the high, on the high end of rates of return. So they dropped a few of those at the end, and even though the average is about 81% rate of return on research, IFPRI has sort of concluded that we should look, look at the median or around 44% uh, rate of return should be the, a conservative estimate of what we can always expect from uh, investment in research on coffee. But looking then among the different commodities that were examined, 
we see that they, they, had, uh, they used about 1,700 studies. Tree crops, they have 108 observations of estimations of rates of return on tree crops. The mean was 88% rate of return, and the median was 33% uh, rate of return. Incidentally, uh, it's been referred to previously, but the rate of return is estimated as the net value of the, the net present value of future returns from an innovation. Um, moving on, coffee production and yield, let's look at the, we want to look at the, what has happened in coffee. Uh, global yield, or as you can see, the global area has been, it's varied quite a lot, but it's relatively constant. Global area of coffee has not increased a lot. Production's increased quite a lot, so global yield has increased. So we can say that coffee yields are increasing, but that's driven by two countries, and we'll see that momentarily. We estimated those same curves of yield for 42 countries that grow coffee, and you can see that they vary from negative rates of, uh, negative, uh, rates of uh, increased uh, yield in Kenya, El Salvador, and Zimbabwe, but the countries that are having the most rapid increase in yield are Brazil, Malawi, China, Vietnam, and Malaysia. Most of those are small producers, except for Vietnam and Brazil, and we'll see how, what impact that that has on our estimates of increased uh, production. Here we separate out Vietnam and Brazil, and we can see that once you take out Vietnam and Brazil, rates of yield in the rest of the world have been pretty much stagnant for the last 50 years. Um, and that what we've seen as a global increase in yield is pretty much due to two countries, Vietnam and Brazil. We wanted to see if we could relate rates of return to, um, or, or increases in yield to the, num to the amount of research. We don't have good data on research. We have some numbers for numbers of PhDs conducting research on coffee. And here we plot that. It's not telling an awful lot, except that we can see that um, many countries are, are grouped or, uh, around one or two researchers total. Probably those researchers are much involved in, main, in yield maintenance, meaning they're probably not making, being able to increase yield, but they're at least taking care of the problems. And so that's one reason why we don't get a very strong relation here. Um, but due to Brazil, at least we get a small indication of an increasing rate of return to research, but this is not a strongly significant uh, relationship. One last point. Oh, well, it also gives us a chance to talk about what are some of the problems with estimating returns to research in coffee. One of the things is that we're very early in, in trying to track this, so our data are very weak. Also, there's a lot of um, spillover from one country to another. For example, Vietnam has, a, has the highest rate of yield among all the coffee-growing countries. It's a relatively recent entrant into coffee production, and likely Vietnam did not develop the varieties that it's using. It's been able to use a spillover effect of varieties from other locations. Another, another issue is this concern about maintenance. You can't, uh, if, if your effort is going into maintaining yield, then you don't see a strong positive relationship in yield growth and uh, in production. Finally, I just wanted, for a conceptual model, 
It's useful to regard our opportunities for increasing productivity or yield. Basically, what we're saying here is that diseases, weeds, and pests reduce yield. At that point, once you've solved those problems, you're limited by water and nutrients. That limits yield. But once you've got all of that solved, then you get to your theoretical uh, maximum yield, uh, where solar radiation, CO2, temperature, and so on determine your, your theoretical yield. We're probably, it's really lamentable that our today, our actual yield, we saw world average is about slightly less than one metric ton per hectare. Once you take out Brazil and Vietnam, it's less than half a ton per hectare. That's really subsistence agriculture. It's really very, very low. Um, the nutrient, probably nutrient water limited yield at this point is probably around four tons per hectare. And I'm asking our, our breeders what do they regard as the theoretical maximum or the potential yield. And they're telling me that somewhere around six tons, I'm hoping it's I'm thinking it's around eight tons, that we have a theoretical possible yield of around eight metric tons per hectare. But that is a long, long way from the one ton per hectare we're getting now. So we've got a long way to go. Thanks, uh, Ed. That, that, uh, that presentation gives a lot. You know, there's a lot of relevance there to some of the challenges that we were talking about earlier and, uh, and how science might be deployed in the agricultural sector to solve some of these problems that we've been thinking about all day. And we'll get back to, the, to that in a minute. But uh, really what we wanted to talk about in this panel is um, in general, including agriculture and all the other places that, uh, that coffee works, is how coffee can become a, um, a more science-friendly um, industry. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got kind of a new relationship with coffee science. It's only a decade since we were saying that we really didn't feel like we were relating um, with science at all. And we've got these new institutions, these coffee centers at universities um, and, uh, and world coffee research, etc. So, but the place that I wanted to begin is in businesses. We all, many of us come from businesses ourselves. And so um, I wanted to start with... Uh, with Maya. Maya, you were, uh, uh, I think, the uh, first scientist um, brought into the uh, organization that you work for. And it, wasn't it a part of a, um, uh, a, an effort to be more scientifically oriented in, at S&D Coffee? Short answer, yes. Um, <laughs> but just to clarify, I, I was actually not the first. I'm the first PhD. Okay. Um, but I think that was a build on you know, a very savvy organization recognizing that in order to be a leader in the 21st century, we really need to take that relationship with coffee to the next level. And that level was a deeper understanding. So, you know, making a more direct connection between uh, not just procuring great tasting coffee, but understanding why it was great tasting and getting down to the sensory level, to the molecular level, uh, to really understand and then educate our customers who could then target their consumers and help them understand why they might like a dark roast versus a light roast versus a particular region. Um, what were the chemical drivers that really impacted their liking? Right, so you're a food scientist. Right. And, and, uh, and so, um, 
And what you're saying is that you've brought a, a, a sort of a scientific expertise and a scientific perspective to things like understanding consumers, product development, that sort of thing. Exactly. What's that meant for, for S&D Coffee to as the process of integrating um, science into the, into, the, uh, into the way that the business is done? Is, have there been challenges or has it been, uh, has it been smooth? Um, like with anything new, nothing smooth, but it's a learning curve. And so, you know, again, recognizing that um, as a coffee industry, we've got great deep knowledge, but it's highly subjective knowledge. And so we know we have this wonderful, magical bean uh, that just has a tremendous uh, plethora of, you know, flavor nuances. And how do we get people to better appreciate it? You know, no one person enjoys the perfect cup. It's perfect to us but what might be driving our liking of it is very different because it's so subjective. Um, so, you know, I may like fruity, dark, you know, chocolatey notes. Bill might like more bright, uh, you know, um, roasty, ashy notes. Uh, both love those particular profiles, but they appeal to us. And so, you know, from helping, uh, I think, both participants as well as whether it's leaders of organizations or customers understand that it's okay for them to have their personal preferences, but how that isn't necessarily the same profile that's enjoyed by their target consumers. You know, they want to sell uh, blends that appeal to the people that they're, you know, they want them to come back to buy more. So us helping them understand, well, who are your target consumers? Um, it's, it, it was a shift in thinking because a lot of times we were so driven because we enjoyed it, you know, as a, an owner of a business, you might enjoy a particular profile so much, you're going, well, why doesn't everybody else enjoy the same thing? It's the great cup, but it might have notes that just don't, aren't as appealing to someone else. So for us to represent a shift in that thinking to say, have you thought about who your target consumers are? What is it that might appeal to them? Here's a different way to look at it, and we've got a more objective approach by drilling it down to, is it fruity, is it dark, is it roasty, mm -hmm. is it ashy? Mm -hmm. And then being able to translate that into consumer speak. Yeah, that's really great. Talking to um, Maya um, about integrating a, a, a PhD scientist into a coffee business, made me realize, uh, made me think, Shahan, about um, your coffee center. And you have had some people from um, coffee companies join your coffee research group at, uh, at Zurich University of Applied Sciences. Uh, tell me how that is, that, that sort of relationship works. Yeah, well, at the base, you know, science is just a technique. It's a technique to give answers to questions that are objective, or we call it intersubjective. So if I come to a conclusion, another person who would do the same experiment would come to the same conclusion. And the main difference is that this is, these are no more opinions. So we want basically, with science, we want to provide information that are reproducible by everybody. But at the beginning, we have, we have to have relevant question on which we give the answer. And that's kind of the most difficult thing. As a scientist, you can ask any question, and at the end, after two years of research, you come and talk about it, and then everybody says, so what? You know? <laughs> what, I mean, what, what's that for, you know? So the problem really is, before you do any research, you have to know what question you are looking for, to answer to. And in order to define the question before you invest a lot of work, you have to be, you have somehow to merge the scientific technique 
with the insight in the industry or the specialty coffee in order to find the right questions. And then you can let the scientists go, and they are very powerful to give an answer as long as the question is well posed. And uh, the, initial, the major problem is to ask the right questions. In order to have these, you need really a close collaboration. And that's where, <clears throat> actually, in our center, we try to combine both. <clears throat> and it's always a very difficult thing. Sometimes this question drift away, you know? So you realize, you ask a question, and after months, you come back, and the question has changed. So it's uh, <clears throat> asking the right questions is the starting point. And asking the right questions means, means often for us also, work, when you work with a company, to have people in the companies who knows how to talk to us and us how to understand what they say. So it's actually the beginning is at the beginning it's a question of communication between two different worlds, defining the right question, and then re-meeting after a while, and then bringing this the answer to be give to application, you know, to bring it to the real world. And that's something that requires also within the companies people understand how to implement res results. Because as scientists, we're not creating a product. We're giving results, we're giving knowledge, we're giving information that can be implemented. So it's this interplay that has to work, has to be created. And I think that in several situations with companies, we have very good, and with universities, this interplay is starting to, to get settled. Mm -hmm. And other places, it's not there. And 10 years ago, very few places were actually able to, to ask the right question and to implement results into products and profitable outcomes. So that's what's changing right now, in my opinion. Yeah. It's really interesting to me, as I've observed um, all of this and watched as relationships, that, like you were talking about, this, this communication is, is really important. And having people that have the skills, you know, this, the, the scientists that can talk to the industry and people in the industry that can talk to the scientists is so critical. And building those relationships is so critical. One of the things that caused me to reflect upon Bill Riston part um, was... Uh, that you know, as you built the, the UC Davis Coffee Center, there's been a lot of coffee engagement. Uh, Pete's Coffee to start with, and then Probot and La Marzocco and, and others have come on board to, to, uh, to commit to the development of that coffee center. But in the undergraduate coffee lab, where you teach a lot, um, uh, I noticed that uh, uh, Chevron actually contributed to the development of that. So that's a, that's a a corporate relationship that I didn't expect. Tell me a little bit how, where that came from. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. So to <clears throat> give a little uh, context, uh, UC Davis has an undergraduate coffee lab. I think it's the first one in the nation, first academic lab in the nation dedicated to teaching uh, undergraduates about coffee science. And uh, you, everybody in the room is invited to come visit and see it. And if you do, you will indeed see in the corner the logo of Chevron Corporation because they played a key role in helping uh, fund the renovation of the space into a beautiful uh, facility. And so a lot of people come from the coffee industry and like, you know, why Chevron? You know, what does that have to do anything? And so uh, my background is in chemical engineering. Uh, Chevron hires a lot of chemical engineers. They hire a lot of engineers in general. And more uh, generally, the petroleum industry has a very long history of funding academic research and funding student initiatives to create an academic pipeline 
not, not for altruistic reasons, but so that they can hire uh, you know, really good talent uh, for their companies. Uh, something a bit closer to coffee than petroleum would be uh, the example of beer. Uh, so another lab on campus uh, at UC Davis is the Anheuser-Busch uh, Brewery, uh, Pilot Brewery. And uh, for those who don't know Anheuser-Busch, you know, they make Budweiser. Uh, they generate, they very generously donated funding to create uh, what is one of the world's best teaching labs for brewing of beer. And uh, when people ask, what, you know, why would, why would Anheuser-Busch fund a lab that's like actually training brewers, some of whom end up, you know, working for their competitors, uh, their answer is, you know, is very simple. So, yeah, you know, it helps the brewing industry uh, as a whole to have a good talent pool for everybody. And also it helps Anheuser-Busch because they have, um, they get, you know, to pick the cream of the crop uh, every year. They hire some of the best. And so that's, that's something that we're building up here at Davis. We want to uh, expand from the undergraduate coffee lab, but also, you know, the coffee center has this vision of creating uh, scientists at the PhD level um, so that uh, in the future when Ed or somebody else shows coffee uh, productivity as a function of number of PhDs, that'll definitely be a linear positive correlation. <laughs> yeah. Well, right, that's hinting at something that you were talking about, right? Which I'm now talking to Ed Price, who started off this roundtable with a presentation. Which is trying to understand the, this correlation between trained people um, in science working in, in fields and, and uh, You've got, you've got some ideas about how, about how uh, trained PhDs and, and, and trained academics can really powerfully charge a, uh, uh, a field like uh, agricultural research. I was curious, you, you gave some examples from other crops, uh, oranges and corn and things. And I'm wondering how it looks. I mean, we in coffee, we don't, we don't have many things to compare ourselves to, but you, you showed us the, the power of their, of their increases in, in yields and, and stuff. But I'm wondering how that looks more generally. Like, uh, like are, are there universities starting um, orange development centers and developing PhDs? And, and what, what can we learn from that, from those other uh, agricultural crops? Yeah, well, the, of course, in the case of oranges, even though it's a tropical, subtropical crop, it does have a, a strong production base in the U.S. That's why Riverside, California has the 1,200 varieties that are used for uh, um, improving the yield variety. So the, it's, you know, that's really the reason we come back and we often talk about coffee as an orphan crop. Mm -hmm. it's, it's those commodities that are grown in the U.S. or grown in a, in a country. They're able to generate this base of support for, for the scholarship, the research, and so on. So it's still a little bit of a dilemma for coffee. Now, I will say that universities are quite excited. UC Davis is excited. We're excited about now this new field of working in coffee. The, the, the key will be how can we link it in to the sources of support. Another thing that you talked about and mentioned earlier is um, uh, the need for collaboration. Everybody's talked about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the big lacks in coffee science those PhDs that you saw scattered all over the world, ones and twos here and there, really probably don't have a great, a strong community for collaborating. They're probably serving their local in, in industry and they just don't have that opportunity to collaborate. I wish that there were a gathering like this that was a coffee scientist uh, gathering where they can begin to collaborate. And I think we're getting toward that stage where when I heard the young fellows giving their talks, they're talking to each other, they're comparing research. So I think that that's really what we need in the science side of things, 
that includes the academics and industry researchers collaborating one with another. And that will create a lot of uh, momentum. Yeah. That, that reminds me uh, to, to speak about uh, ASIC. Uh, Shahan, you're the secretary for, uh, for ASIC, which is a, uh, an association of, uh, of coffee scientists. And, and aren't you planning an, a, an event? Um, well, we're planning together an yeah. event very much like this, um, exactly as Ed describes for the, coffee, for the coffee science community, right? Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, ASIC is essentially an organization organized every second year a major coffee conference with 500 participants. And next one will be in Portland uh, in September. And um, really it has been very much based on science. So scientists meet and talk about it. And this year we're organizing together with the SEA. Uh, and we'd like to bring a little bit more reality to the science. And, um, <clears throat> and it's actually very important to create these meeting points, you know. So science, it has always been traditionally scientists talking to scientists, and scientists have to talk also to people who implement, because every science has at some point to be implemented. That's what I call applied science. Uh, and, um, and applied science is actually the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a field that has still to be developed, understood, and implemented. Yeah. A lot of people do science, and the difference between applied science and fundamental science is still blurred. And uh, I think that in an organization like ASIC or other organization is really to redefine the, the meaning of applied science and uh, make something that is useful. And uh, let me give you one example, you know, like grinding, you know. Grinding is an era we always talk, we need more understanding. You know, when I started a few years ago, when you asked somebody how we grind, they said, I put position five on that grinder, and that's it. You know? and, then, uh, and everybody was happy. You could even publish in scientific papers. Now today, we're a little bit more refined. We have these particle-sized distributions, and we get distributions, so everybody's happy to see that. But still, these are numbers. You know? And then, what do you do with that? What is the meaning of that? What, is the t what type of numbers are related to, I don't know, to uh, sensory properties, to extraction properties? Um, there's still a huge lack of, inf of knowledge because you have to make now the last step from data to information, meaning, and that's where we have to understand what kind of information do we have to extract from this part size distribution? So grinding is a very interesting era where everybody says it's so important and we know so little. We have a lot of number, but we have very little information. And so there is really the need for the science who can do a lot. Science can do a lot, but often it doesn't know the real questions to ask. And that's where the specialty coffee community has a big responsibility. Right. The fundamental question for me is, does quality matter, for example? You know, so you make really bad coffee, everybody drinks it. So why to do research, you know, if quality doesn't matter? You, know, you can so grind whatever you want, take whatever coffee, people will still drink it, you know? So actually, at the beginning, quality must, should matter to me. And so you have to have some really good questions to ask that science can make an impact. If there's nothing to make an impact, science will not make an impact. Right. All right, so, so we've talked about the importance of, of these gathering places, and one thing I'd like to mention is that part of the ASIC program for the first time this year will be a day that's ex expressly focused on people from the industry, like us, to come and engage with scientists, and it, we're calling it the Industry Day, so when uh, people, it's a special one-day pass to the, the scientific conference where um, we're designing special scientific presentations 
made for people in the industry, um, and so we can build some of these bridges, so we can develop some of these relationships like we're talking about. So we're talking about hypothesis generation, which you're, 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 you're mentioning, and, um, and the importance of interaction. But Ed mentioned something about, um, about resources, generating resources. And, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. That's a really important thing to be able to drive resources, um, and that happens in other industries. So um, I'd love to get some ideas and some thoughts about how we might drive um, more resources or how other industries um, drive resources towards these kinds of things, activities. About to speak is Bill Ristenpart. I'll Bill. mention the petroleum yeah. industry again. So there's something called the American Chemistry Society Petroleum Research Fund, and they fund a tremendous amount of research every year. That you know they have uh, panels that uh, accept proposals from faculty all over the nation, doing research specifically for the overall benefit of the petroleum industry. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> I think if there was something like that for coffee. Um, it would not only be good just for the people up here on the stage, but there would be tremendous excitement and more enthusiasm amongst all the different academic departments across different universities. I mean, it would start becoming, as soon as there's funding available, you, you attract talent to tackle good questions and good hypotheses. Yeah. We were in a meeting um, the, uh, some months ago, and, uh, and one, of the, one of the people in the, the meeting asked me, you know, what percentage of the, of, the, um, of the revenues of the specialty coffee industry are, is the specialty coffee w industry willing to commit to um, scientific research? And, and I didn't know the answer to that. You know, I didn't have an answer to that because our community hasn't decided what the answer to that is going to be. And I thought, I thought that was an interesting question to, to, uh, to meditate on. So um, uh, Bill, Bill Murray, one of the things that, interesting things that came out of our conversation um, in preparation with this is, okay, so we have these, these, the, the scientific stuff happening and things coming out, and um, you asked a, what I thought was a really interesting question is, what do we do with it once it starts mm -hmm. coming out? Mm -hmm. And you had some interesting um, thoughts about that. Once there's a flow of science, how do we interpret it and mm. position it for people? I, I think, um, well, well, first of all, Peter, I appreciate the opportunity to be up here. Um, you can go down the line, professor, doctor, doctor, and then there's me. So um, my, my earpiece is actually no connected pressure. to a real scientist behind there who's <laughs> telling me to say things like multivariate regression analysis. So, um, so I, otherwise, I wouldn't be able to be here with you. Uh, but my job as a liberal arts graduate at the National Coffee Association is almost in a way to act as an interface between the industry, a B2B interface, a B2C interface. And I think this really leads to the question about all of us here in the room as coffee professionals. What is our role and responsibility as a professional with respect to coffee science and the industry? You can take, for example, the Prop 65 decision about two weeks ago. Uh, there were newspapers, media, social outlets all across the country, and they really have one objective. It's to sell clicks. It's to get people to click on their stories, to sell advertising. And what better way to do that than to put up a headline that says coffee and cancer? There's probably no more terrifying word in the English language than cancer. And there's something that close to 80% of the population touches every single day. So the folks that are out there who are running the media are running from issue to issue to issue. Uh, the day of the decision, I got a phone call from one of the major TV networks at 4.30 in the morning. 
And they said, we're running this story in about 90 minutes. What can you tell us? Now, I, I think it's back to this question of role and responsibility and resources. We're not just talking to a passive environment. We're talking to media companies that are out there trying to make money. And if they scare people, if they sensationalize things, that's just part of what they do. So the question for all of us is when the customers come into our coffee shop, when our customers, when our wholesale customers give us a ring, what are we going to say to them? Now, at one level, society is increasingly all about feelings. Well, I think that's a lot of nonsense. But the real way to win this discussion is to make reference to the science, to talk to the third parties who are out there, and to speak to people in a very professional, very well-grounded, very well-researched kind of way. And it's not really that hard. You need to identify those sources that are helping you with this, like the SEA, like the NCA, like UC Davis, and look at the messages that they're putting together. Coffee and cancer, what does that mean? Well, actually, as Britt told us a few minutes ago, it really doesn't mean anything. Because in the first case, the United Nations said you shouldn't worry about it. Second, the U.S. government has said coffee can be part of your healthy diet. And third, Harvard has studied this, and they say you can live longer if you're going to drink coffee. So I wouldn't worry about that. There's your message box. It's simple, it's to the point, and it's not about feelings. It's about what the research says, it's about what the science says, so people can go on and move on to something else. So I think one of the key issues for us as professionals is how do we look at the science, how do we see what's relevant, how do we discriminate between the good science and the junk science, and the answer is look to third parties like the SCA, and then how can we keep our organization focused and articulate so we can help get that message out. Yeah, that's great. Um, and it's, it seems to me that that, that really um, uh, points to the need for science literacy, mm -hmm. um, the ability for organizations like ours, but also in, uh, in companies like represent everybody here. Because like you said, we need to have conversation with our customers, with the public about these things. I was reflecting I, 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 when the news um, came out the other week about uh, Proposition 65, I was drawn back to my time as a barista. Mm -hmm. Um, and remembering those moments when people would come up to the counter and ask questions and stuff. I remember the day that there was some news about uh, green tea and its connection to anti-cancer, and then the next day there was a line of customers uh, chain-smoking cigarettes and waiting to buy uh, green tea. Um, so it can have a powerful impact on our, on our customers. And so um, in a lot of our, our, our conversations came back around to the importance of a pipeline of scientists and scientifically trained people, even who aren't scientists, science literate people, into our industries. And it seems to me that that's a, that really is a, a function of, of universities and applied sciences to teach um, people into the in these industries as a pipeline. About to speak is Shahan Yaretsian. Yeah, perhaps I'd like to say something about this new issue of uh, new now uh, in, in perhaps in some communities is this process contaminants, as we call them as a scientist. In the process, you can generate some compounds that are critical to the health, possibly. And acrylamide is one of these. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> really to address this issue is, it reminds me of the discussion we had before, you know, diversity and uh, communication. It has a lot to do with understanding, for example, this agencies who rule things, you know. They come up with uh, uh, legislation, uh, policies, 
And uh, really, the wrong way is to say they are wrong. It's more mm -hmm. to really try to understand what is the logic of these people. Because as a coffee person, we, we know coffee is actually healthy as a full product. But of course, there's individual compounds in coffee that if you drink them individually in high doses and you give them to rats, they create <laughs> cancer, you know? But as a coffee product, it's actually healthy. So they are actually, so there's a contradiction for me as a scientist, but still the people in legislation live with that, they accept that. So uh, we can say they are just dumb or, you know, they don't understand us or we try to understand these people. So at the end, it is really, as a scientist, we can deliver data, exposure data. How much is a customer exposed to which kind of compound? And that's that base we have to deliver. Clear data of exposure data, uh, exposure amounts on acrylamide, on furan, on furfuryl alcohol, all the compounds that are there. But then, that's in the air. It's going to be inter interpreted. It's going to put into legislation. So we have, as a scientist, we have to understand these people and influence these people. And that's kind of a challenge because we're so busy as scientists, we don't waste time. But we have to waste time, kind of, to understand the other people and create these communities. And the SCA is perhaps a very good place to create these communities for the dialogue and for common resolution of these. Because right now, the dialogue isn't that strong. Not here. Speaking next is Bill Murray. If I, I think your point about communication is an excellent one, and it, and it needs to be a, a two-way communication. We need, as a scientific community, to put myself on this side of the table, to hear from the industry, from hear from the practitioners, what they need and what they need to do. We have a group uh, within the NCA called the Scientific Advisory Group. Uh, Maya's on the group. We look at these issues and we dig into them. And a, and a good example, uh, Britt mentioned cold brew. Uh, last fall, there was a recall issued by Deathwish Coffee uh, for their cold brew, their nitro cold brew potential contaminants. There were a couple of lessons here. One lesson was you probably shouldn't name your company after you've been joking around in your boardroom <laughs> drinking a couple of beers, because especially if it's food related and there are safety issues, uh, probably seemed like a good idea at the time. But, but the second question really was, once you got past the recall issue, were there bigger questions that science could help us answer? And in this case, the answer was absolutely why. One of the reasons we like cold brew is because of that mouthfeel. That mouthfeel is a result of lower acidity. That lower acidity means that there's less acid to kill all the bad things, the pathogens that could be in the coffee. We traditionally, because of the nature of coffee, we've not spent a lot of issue focusing on food safety questions, simply because, for all the reasons we know. But when it comes to cold brew, it's actually a very different situation. And so if you've got coffee shops and people all across the country, making cold brew to ride the business wave, making it in their backyard, their homer buckets in the refrigerators. And they're thinking, well, we're not safety professionals. We've never had to worry about that. Well, it's actually different now. You need to worry about it. So we look at this and we say, okay, if we're having that two-way conversation, what can we do with our scientists to help make sure that the community can act responsibly? So what we started doing was to work on creating a safety kit, a toolkit. We're going to release a draft of that toolkit. It's going to address uh, shelf life and storage and transportation. We're going to release a draft on Monday. We're going to seek uh, industry and community input and commentary on the toolkit. And, 
And when we're done, we're hoping it's gonna be a reference so everybody can look at this. Our scientists really wouldn't have known to look at that if we all hadn't been talking about this thing. <coughs> yeah, we wanna get past this recall issue and the integrity of the category, but what are the bigger issues that science can help us with? Are there gonna be other issues down the road? Well, maybe, but hopefully not, because if the toolkit's out there and people are paying attention and they're acting responsibly, they've now got resources based on the science to help them do what they need to do. Yeah. Well, as we bring this to a close, um, I think that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to invite everyone in the room. We've just talked about a number of places, your, your, that advisory group, um, ASIC, um, our various institutions, this conference, World Coffee Research, as places for those connections to be made and those discussions can be, be had. Thanks, everyone. That was Dr. Maya Zuniga, Professor Ed Price, Bill Murray, Dr. William Rissenpart, and Dr. Shahan Yaretsian at RICO Symposium this past April. Remember to check our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to the speaker bios on the RICO website. This has been the RICO Podcast, brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. <laughs>